Francisco. Crazy baby, chill. Don't medicate, just meditate. You waking up now, well, baby, you hella late. Educate, look at what's going on, let it resonate, accelerate. Find your inner hunger like you never ate. Agenda is to push the hate. Separate and segregate, don't celebrate. Quite yet, the storm is coming. Cue for heaven's sake, violence that they demonstrate. Instigate and penetrate the values of our country, and our God is what they desecrate. My fighters ain't no featherweight. Pulling out the seams of the fabric that they fabricate They feed us lies, manipulate, intimidate, do fear and force Forcing us to sit and wait Till we come together, congregate Then we liberate Praying that you give me strength to find some love amongst the hate Marching on the streets of blood Till I see the golden gates Troubadour, troubled souls, one of God's servants Blades out, cut the grass till we see the serpents One day I hope you see the truth This puppet show it stays on because of you fools We've been dancing with the devil way too long I know it's fun but get ready to pay your dues I know the truth is hard to swallow, just digest it Suspected something's going on, chose to just neglect it Deflected by some breaking news, hope we just accepted Expected just to fall in line and follow their perspective Don't question their objective, but I got a lot of questions How these kids molested, but nobody's been arrested Read it in the testament, these children are protected So I'm fighting all these terrorists, both foreign and domestic Refuse to be directed Lying out of sheep, only kneel to my God So I'm dying on my feet, uh, silence when we speak But there's violence in the street I've been rolling with the punches, I can't take it on the cheek nah. Drink from a glass half full, I'm optimistic People are sadistic, so vicious and malicious Praying for assistance to overcome my position No, I'm gonna start resisting and then I'll pray for forgiveness One day, uh. I hope you see the truth This puppet show, it stays on because of you fools We've been dancing with the devil way too long I know it's fun, but get ready to pay your dues
this puppet show it stays on because of you fools we've been dancing with the devil way too long i know it's fun but get ready to pay your dues We need you now We definitely need God now. <laughs> definitely, definitely, definitely. Sorry about the sound issues. Uh, I have a little bit of a problem with my power source, so I unplug everything and I had forgotten to plug something back in. Um, <laughs> I wanted to say that today we're going to talk about memory and going back in time and what we remember. Um, during our journey as we're collating this documentary, we stumbled upon some archives of uh, um <laughs> what I want to call our Tokyo Rose and um, memory is what we're going to talk about. But let's put that memory in shape. Now uh, I see that uh, OAN reported tonight that they found newly uncovered video showing HHS officials discussing how a new virus from China could be used to enforce universal vaccination back in October of 2019. Well, what if I told you that he had planned this way before? We're talking 2012, and I've got him on video. So um, let's start with OAN's uh, video, right? And then we'll go to the real sauce, where he's advocating for gain of function and how he wanted this to happen and how we needed gain of function because, you know, we need gain of function so we can see how we can make animal diseases go to humans and vice versa. Um, quite interesting because, you know, gain of function is not something we want, but they do. So uh, let's start with OAN's fantastic report and encumbery. Almost makes you feel like they're in your shit and getting it. Who's peeking? But okay, uh, they uncovered this. Fair enough. They came first. It's only the mountain who's first. These are the ants. So let's take a listen to what they're reporting. One American News Network is proud to announce that we have just launched a brand new social media platform. Yeah, I'm muting the screen. Finally, you have the freedom of speech. Newly uncovered video shows Anthony Fauci and other HHS officials discussing how a new virus from China could be used to enforce universal vaccination back in October of 2019. Here's one America's Pearson Sharp. As many of us have long suspected, this pandemic and all the resulting chaos was never about fighting a new virus and protecting public safety. This entire exercise has been a government-sanctioned effort to strip Americans of their rights and force us to follow their orders without question 
or else. You're not allowed to question or raise any objections or the full weight of the federal government will come down on you, no exceptions. We're supposedly in the midst of the worst pandemic in the history of the world where hospitals are overflowing with sick and dying patients. Yet at the same time, we can afford to fire hundreds of thousands of healthcare workers who refuse to take the experimental vaccine. Imagine that. And all to fight against the most dangerous, and many now believe it's because this entire situation may have been contrived from the very start. Footage has just been uncovered from a panel at the Milken Institute where the high prophet of pharma, the good doctor and dog murderer, Anthony Fauci, was discussing viruses with other officials from the Department of Health and Inhuman Services. In the video, Fauci complains that releasing a vaccine the proper way takes way too long, at least 10 years, he says, and how unfortunate it is that people don't take the regular flu seriously. The other officials agree and suggest blowing the system up and finding a new way to impose a universal flu vaccine. They noted that people would be reluctant to take that kind of vaccine when it hasn't been tried or tested. That's when another doctor, Rick Bright, also a member of the Rockefeller Foundation, proposed that they should disrupt the bureaucratic process somehow and cut through all the red tape using what he called an entity of excitement. And then Bright tops it all by suggesting, you know, it's not too crazy to think there could be an outbreak of a novel avian flu virus from China, and they could then use that to make a global mRNA vaccine to be tested out on the public. And the best part of all, all of this happened in October of 2019. Watch it here for yourself. Why don't we blow the system up? I mean, obviously, we can't just turn off the spigot on the system we have and then say, hey, everyone in the world should get this new vaccine we haven't given to anyone yet. But there must be some way that we grow vaccines mostly in eggs the way we did in 1947. In order to make the transition from getting out of the tried and true egg growing, which we know gives us results that can be you know, beneficial. I mean, we've done well with that to something that has to be much better. Uh, you have to prove that this works. And then you've got to go through all of the clinical trials, phase ones, phase twos, phase three, and then show that this particular product is going to be good over a period of years. That alone, if it works perfectly, is going to take a decade. There might be a need or even an urgent call for uh, an entity right. of excitement out there that's completely disruptive, that's not beholden to bureaucratic strings and, and, and processes. So we really do have a problem of how the world perceives influenza, and it's going to be very difficult to change that unless you do it from within and say, I don't care what your perception is, we're going to address the problem in a disruptive way and in an iterative way, because you do need both. But it is not too crazy to think that an outbreak of an, a novel avian virus could occur in, in China somewhere. We could get the RNA sequence from that, beam it to a number of regional centers, if not local, if not even in your home at some point, and print those vaccines on a patch and self-administer. It's hard to misinterpret what's being said here. They're essentially outlining the pandemic. Everything we've seen 
from the last year and a half described right here in this video before it happened. And this isn't the first time Fauci has gone on the record to apparently broadcast his intentions about the pandemic. Back when President Trump first took office, Fauci came out with a suspiciously prescient prediction that a major viral pandemic will strike the United States during Trump's administration. The topic today is the issue of pandemic uh, preparedness. And if there's one message that I want to leave with you today based on my experience, and you'll see that in a moment, is that there is no question that there will be a challenge to the coming administration in the arena of infectious diseases, both chronic infectious diseases in the sense of already ongoing disease, and we have certainly a large burden of that, but also there will be a surprise outbreak. And now, here we are today living through the scenario that Fauci said was coming all the way back in 2017. The government has used this pandemic to an... OAN is showing you 2019. What if I told you I have 2012? That tells you even more. Let's just finish this up. Act sweeping totalitarian changes to our everyday lives, seizing control faster than anyone thought possible. And never in the history of the world has a government ever taken power and then given it back voluntarily. And while China gains strength, Taliban terrorists take over countries, our border collapses amid a flood of millions of third world illegal opportunists. Inflation skyrockets and the supply chain dries up. We're being threatened with even more restrictions of our rights if we don't comply with the tyrannical vaccine mandates. Unless we, the people, demand that our rights be preserved and our civil liberties be protected and our government be held responsible for its treachery, then this rogue administration will never stop encroaching on our freedoms. For one American... So they showed you a video of them discussing it out and open because they always tell you what they're going to do. But the thing is, you know, Fauci's like, no, gain of function. We don't do that overseas. Gain of function. We don't do that. Well, we have him on the record advocating for gain of function research, specifically that of what they even said in that video, an avion flu somewhere in China in 2012. And this came on the heels of a moratorium that was removed. So moratorium just so you understand, is a delay or suspending the actions um, uh, or a law of something. Uh, so they gave like, uh, just listen to his words. That's all I have to say. So when this moratorium um, was ended on the br bird flu study, right? This is what Anthony Fauci said. He said, we need to study how these, we need to do gain of function research to see what these vaccine, what these viruses can do. It's him, no one else, his mouth. We've done two things by this publication. One is wake up the world to the urgent problem. And secondly, it motivated lots, lots of scientists. We have their attention. Let them think about ways in which they can design new drugs, new uh, theories and so on. Speaking and, uh, to VOA via Skype, Dr. Bruce Alberts, the editor-in-chief of Science, says the finding that the bird flu virus can jump species and become transmissible among mammals as the result of just a few mutations is a discovery of major importance.
He says it's important to publish that information because the world's scientists and policymakers must understand it and deal with it. This virus uh, is most dangerous immediately in Indonesia, Vietnam, China, places like that. And uh, if we decide we're going to keep this information in the United States, this is, this is a terrible diplomatic problem for, for everybody. Whenever you do research that involves infectious diseases, there's the possibility of what we call dual use, namely significant benefits from the research, as well as the possibility of some risks from the research. Dr. Anthony Fauci is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He says the research is important because it provides a better understanding of an evolving virus and the possibility of spillover infection in which a bird virus infects a human or another mammal. Experts say this is a research frontier where concerned scientists must have access to major findings by other scientists in order to move ahead faster. Because in nature, the virus is already doing what we're trying to figure out it's doing now with the experiments. So if we don't do any experiments, the virus is just not going to go away. It's here. It's a clear danger. It's a present danger. And that's the reason why we're doing research on it. So far, H5N1 is seen most commonly in ducks and chickens and has only infected about 600 people since 2003. But when it does affect humans, it has proved fatal, killing about half of those infected. Experts say information on the genetic makeup of the virus must be widely shared. Those working to develop drugs for this virus must know what it looks like its adaptability to humans, and the extent of its transmission from animal to human and from human to human. Vidushi Sinha, VOA News, Washington. What we have here is Fauci talking about his gain-of-function research when H1N1 was only small. And he spoke up when they ended the moratorium where they allowed the gain-of-function research and he was advocating for it. This guy has been doing this forever. And what's insane is, is that he sat there and told Congress there's no gain of function research. Here he is saying, and they're advocating to share it with everyone else and that everyone should be doing it and we should be checking. Listen, when you manipulate something in order to infect people, right, and to test it, it's a big problem. It is a very big problem. He did almost all of them. And this is why they keep recycling HIV, which, by the way, funny, 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 funny how this pill has to do with pharma, bro. So weird. Poor Martin Shkreli. Now, today we're going to talk about memory and more specifically your DNA. And that's going to be the topic of today's show. Uh, But before we do that, I think we should listen to our president uh, who spoke on the phone yesterday. And... um, have a listen to what he had to say. It was um, nice to hear him. It was nice to hear what he had to say. Take a listen. Trump, Mr. President, you urge the United States senators today not to do what they promised for two months they wouldn't do, but yet they threw a lifeline to Chuck Schumer. And by the way, Chuck Schumer, Elizabeth Warren, yep, 
they're they're mocking Mitch McConnell. They're making fun of the Republicans and they're laughing at him because he just threw them a lifeline that they didn't have to throw them. The Republican Senate needs new leadership. I've been saying it for a long time. Mitch is not the guy. He's not the right guy. He's not doing the job. He gave them a lifeline. It's more than a lifeline. He gave them so much time now to figure out what to do because they were in a real big bind. They wouldn't have been able to do anything. He had the weapon and he was unable to use it. And it's a shame. It's a shame. These 11 people, I know some are wonderful and some I don't agree with too often. You know, I'm not surprised to see some of the names, but I will tell you this. That was not a good thing that happened today. He made a big mistake. Let me let me start. There's a lot going on in the country. And um, when you start with abandoning Americans in Afghanistan, and I want to get into all of these issues in detail, and then you look at the crisis at the border, you look at Joe Biden gave up the energy independence that you achieved for the first time in 75 years, and now he's begging OPEC. Um, you look at inflation, you look at the cost of energy, you look at America's standing in the world, you look at the saber rattling in China, we got a lot, a lot of ground to cover. The first thing, though, that I really think needs to be discussed is it's what now day 54 Americans abandoned behind enemy lines. It's been almost 40 days since Joe has even mentioned them. We have thousands of green card holders. We have unknown hundreds of Americans and their families abandoned. He said he wouldn't do it 13 days before he abandoned them. Then we have Afghan allies we abandoned. And then we have military equipment in the billions of dollars that we leave in the hands of terrorists. I never thought, Mr. President, in my lifetime that I'd ever see that happen. What, is there anything we can do now? Well, look, we have to get our country back. It's uh, what happened in Afghanistan, in my opinion, Sean, is the single most embarrassing event to happen to our country, maybe in its history. Uh, the The warriors that were killed, and I've spoken to the parents of many of them, and they're devastated. How did we take out the military before everything else? The military is gone and we leave everybody else there. And remember this, $85 billion, the best military equipment. I bought it. I rebuilt the entire military. $85 billion, the best, the best equipment, military equipment in the world. And now they're uh, taking it apart. Russia, China, they've already got some. They're taking it apart. They're going to examine it and they're going to build it themselves. They can never do what we have with the Black Hawk helicopters and all of the other things that we have. This is the most embarrassing. It looked like a total surrender, the most embarrassing moment. And then you look also at the border and they see these pictures at the border of hundreds of thousands of people coming in every couple of weeks into our country. We have no idea who they are. And by the way, speaking of that, uh, go back to Afghanistan and you take a look at the People that came out of Afghanistan, only 3% of them qualified to come out. They just rushed the airplanes, and they're plenty tough and plenty smart and a lot of energy. And those are the people that got onto the plane. 3%, the various planes, 3% of the people qualify. And it's incredible what's happening to our country. We're being laughed at all over the world. We're not respected anymore. We had a thing going. You, you take a look at Taiwan. There wasn't that was not happening during the Trump administration with Taiwan. And they understood you can't do that. And what's going on is just a terrible thing for our country. I don't think I don't think we've ever been this disrespected.
You know, you, you, you were last time on this program, and I think we need to put emphasis back on this, that your conversation with the leader of the Taliban before you ever discussed any deal of withdrawal was, number one, it was based on your, your stated threat that you would obliterate them. Do you remember exactly what you said? Because I have a source that says you were brutal to them and that you said you would destroy them. You would destroy their province. You would destroy it. And it would be everybody in the area would be dead. Did you say that? So what I said, and I had a very strong conversation, I said, I hate to start the conversation this way, but that's the way it is. And I said we would do serious, serious harm to them if they killed any of our soldiers or any American citizen and went on from there. And then we got back into a more normalized conversation. Well, from that conversation on 18 months, I believe, is the amount of time we didn't lose one soldier. We didn't have one soldier shot at. No American was killed. They understood exactly. And they also understood we were getting out and they had conditions. They didn't fulfill those conditions. So we hit them hard and we stayed longer and we were getting ready to move. And I said, I want every bolt. I want every nail. I want every screw. I want the, you know, those buildings, those beautiful canvas buildings that we build as hangars. I want the buildings taken out. I want the canvas. I want the airplanes. I want the tanks. I want every single piece of equipment we have. And then we were going to bomb five airfields and we were going to keep Bagram because it's right next to China. In fact, it's right next to their, very close to their nuclear facility. It would have been great to keep it. It cost $10 billion to build it. And we left with the lights on. They left the lights on. They left the dogs there. They didn't destroy the equipment. They didn't take the equipment out. They said they destroyed some equipment because they were so embarrassed that they left without the equipment. $85 billion. Nobody knows what that is. $85 billion worth of equipment. The entire budget, military budget of Russia for a year is 50, 50 billion. And we left $85 billion worth of equipment in the hands of the Taliban. So here's my, so you would obliterate them if they didn't follow every dotted I and cross T. Okay. You also, it was going to be, it was going to be, it was going to be a conditions based withdrawal only if conditions were suitable. You would keep in perpetuity Bagram Air Base, which we paid for and, and built. Can you explain to me when Joe Biden had the month of March, April, May, June, and July, when he had full control of Kabul? including the perimeter around Karzai International Airport, when the Taliban was south, way south of Kabul, why didn't he evacuate? If he wasn't going to obliterate them and push them back, why didn't he move everybody out when he had full control of Kabul and the airport and the perimeter? Why would he wait until the Taliban took over Kabul? Nobody understands it, and the media is not covering it. It's already become like not only fake news, but old news. They're trying to get rid of it. You don't see them talking about that now. I read an article two days ago where they're selling the machine guns. They have 600,000 guns of different types, the most sophisticated weapons in the world. And they're selling these machine guns and guns on the black market. Uh, Other countries are buying them. They're selling them. They don't need that many. You don't need that many. 600 to 700,000 guns. They have night goggles that are better than anything we have. The latest model, brand new, out of the box, never used before, 
the latest model, all stuff that, you know, they never liked to very good fighters, but they never liked the Taliban fighting at night. Now they can fight at night. They can do what they want to do. They have the best. They have the Apache helicopters. They have the the best equipment in the world, $85 billion. That wasn't the deal. And they understood. I spoke to Abdul, and Abdul understood. We're leaving, and we're taking our equipment, and we're taking our American citizens. If they wanted to stay, they had the right to stay, but they don't want to stay. And we were taking them. And the last out would have been, and when everything's gone, the last out would have been our military. The big mistake to take our military out first. And I could just see these people saying, Abdul, he is the leader. And now if you look, he's the leader still. I could just see them saying, Abdul, the American military has left. And him saying, there's no way. You've got to be crazy. And they go, no, no, they've left and going in and then they go to Kabul and they'll find out that they left. These guys could not believe that they left. But that's what happened. Let me move to the border, Mr. President. Uh, when you first ran, it became a big issue. You implemented what's known as the stay in Mexico policy that's been abolished. Uh, you built about 500 miles of new wall. Um, we had the lowest rate of illegal immigrants coming into this country in, in nearly 40 years. Uh, you eliminated the catch and release program. Uh, the wall building has stopped. The stay in Mexico program has ended and it's no longer catch and release. It's process and release and then hand them a people a request form. We request that you may show up in court. You don't have to. We're not mandating what we request it. I doubt people will honor that request. We now have we're on path to have a record number of illegal immigrants, probably a 30 year high. We're closing in on two million illegal immigrants in the country. There's no vaccine mandates like are for American citizens. There's no covid checks. There's a high rate of covid positivity. There's no security or background checks if people have radical associations. It's all unfolding before our eye. You see the mess at the border. You saw the overcrowded cages. You had it under complete control. Um, and now we see the Democrats are trying to put, slip in amnesty in this reconciliation bill. Um, you know, I, I, at this point, I've got to believe that this is done on purpose. They're not enforcing the law. If you didn't enforce the law, they'd want to impeach you. It seems like they're aiding and abetting and lawbreaking. What are your thoughts on the border? Well, I think you're right about that. And I will say that the border we had was the strongest probably ever. And all they had to do is leave it alone. You know, they sued us, the Democrats, Congress, for two and a half years. We won all the suits for two and a half years, and then we were able to start the wall. It would have been finished in a period of literally a period of weeks. And now we're paying $6 million a week for contractors not to build the wall. Now, the wall was almost complete, and it's one of the things that led to this great record. And one thing you didn't say, Sean, is drugs. Drugs were at the lowest point, drugs coming in, in particular fentanyl, which is a brutal drug, it was stopped. It was at a level that we hadn't seen in a long time, low level. And now it's coming in at levels that we've never seen, three, four, five times more than we ever had coming in. It's pouring into our country. There's something wrong. They, they, you, you wouldn't believe you could even say this, but somebody doesn't love our country. When they allow this to happen to our country, we have 
hundreds of thousands of people pouring in every two weeks, hundreds of thousands and coming from countries we don't even know from where they're coming. And, you know, they're emptying out many countries. I used to say the three Guatemala, you could add Mexico, Honduras, you could add El Salvador. But I used to say three or four countries. I hear it's 50 countries. They're emptying out their prisons into the United States. Their jails, some of the toughest people on earth are being dumped into the United States because they don't want them. They don't want to take care of them for the next 40 years. So these people that are the roughest prisoners there are anywhere are being dumped into the United States for us to take care of them. You know, what are they doing? They're destroying our country. Well, that's now a big part of the spending bill. I guess this is the difference between America first policies and American last policies. You know, when you were when you were out and you were pushing to get the money and fighting to get the money, which you eventually found a way uh, to build the 500 miles of wall that you, you built. You talked about a big wall with a beautiful wall, you used to say, with a big door in it. Now, I'm for legal immigration. All four of my grandparents came from Ireland. I think, you know, my family's story. And, mm-hmm. you know, they had no money in their pocket. They were broke. And my parents grew up very poor. And but so I'm pro I'm pro immigration. Is it wrong to ask for a security check to make sure you don't have radical associations in the middle of a pandemic? Should we not give preferential treatment to people that don't respect our law? Should they at least have a COVID test, a health check? Is it wrong to say that if we're going to invite you into our country, we don't care where you come from, but you got to be able to provide for yourself and you won't be a financial burden on the American people? That seems like like pretty fair conditions. Would you support that? Well, you have to support that. And for everybody else, they have to go through it. But if they just happen to walk in, they don't have to do any of the things that were supposed to be done. And, and you know, there's one other thing that nobody talks about. So we have hundreds of thousands of people flowing in from Haiti. Haiti has a tremendous AIDS problem. AIDS is a step beyond. AIDS is a, a real bad problem. So hundreds of thousands of people are coming into our country. And if you look at the stats, if you look at the numbers, if you look at just take a look at what's happening in Haiti, a tremendous problem with AIDS. Many of those people will probably have AIDS and they're coming into our country and we don't do anything about it. We let everybody come in. Sean, it's like a death wish. It's like a death wish for our country. A death wish for our country. It totally is. We can all see that now. We can all see it. What have they done for us? What have they done to assist us, the people? Absolutely nothing. Treasure that we hold from the spiritual knowledge of our free schools and churches to the creative magic of free labor and capital. Nothing lies safely beyond the reach of this struggle. Freedom is pitted against slavery, lightness against the dark. The faith we hold belongs not to us alone, but to the free of all the world. This common bond binds the grower of rice in Burma and the planter of wheat in Iowa, the shepherd in southern Italy and the mountaineer in the Andes. It confers a common dignity upon the French soldier who dies in Indochina 
the British soldier killed in Malaya, the American life given in Korea. We know beyond this that we are linked to all free peoples, not merely by a noble idea, but by a simple need. No free people can for long cling to any privilege or enjoy any safety in economic solitude. For all our own material might, even we need markets in the world for the surpluses of our farms and our factories. Equally, we need for these same farms and factories vital materials and products of distant lands. This basic law of interdependence, so manifest in the commerce of peace, applies with thousandfold intensity in the event of war. So are we persuaded by necessity and by belief that the strength of all free peoples lies in unity, their danger in discord. To produce this unity, to meet the challenge of our time, destiny has laid upon our country the responsibility of the free world's leadership. So it is proper that we assure our friends once again that in the discharge of this responsibility, we Americans know and we observe the difference between world leadership and imperialism, between firmness and truculence, between a thoughtfully calculated goal and spasmodic reaction to the stimulus of emergencies. We wish our friends the world over to know this above all. We face the threat not with dread and confusion, but with confidence and conviction. Confidence and conviction. I think we're all confident, and I think we all have some conviction, right? We are up against a very existential threat, an existential threat against our nation's survival, against our ability to exist as a people. Now, having said that, we're going to shift gears. So we're going to take a quick break while I get that coffee done, gone going. And we start on learning about DNA and memories from beyond. We will be victorious. And that's surely the case. Now, we should discuss DNA. So if you heard what they were talking about, the one from the OAN video and what Fauci said, they said they would be printing out a patch of a vaccine that you can stick on yourself. Where did I tell you about that before? That's right. The show with Kodak and Ventilators. That's still alive on YouTube. Haven't watched it. You must. Now, I've said this. I, I say this to my children as well. There is nothing you do not know 
your capabilities are only bound by the boundaries you set. No one doesn't know anything. In fact, you are simply relearning things that you do not remember. Why? Why do I say this? Well, many, many years ago, there were discussions on how to store all this data we're collecting. I'm going to take you back in time to 2013 when the Discovery Channel was discussing DNA and the storage of data. Now, this is a, a science that supposedly was happening before they were reporting it. But for some reason, <laughs> nobody talked about it. You think it's something out of sci-fi, but it's really not. It's uh, actual fact. It's uh, reality. It's uh, all memories from your ancestors are passed on to you and they're stored in your DNA, but nobody wants to talk about it. We need to talk about that. Assassin's Creed fans, fire up your hands. Passed down in our genes. Anthony here for D News, joined again by Tara Long, who reviewed Assassin's Creed 4 on Rev3 Games and also hosts Hard Science with me and is also my buddy. Oh, hey, yeah. Hey, buddy. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. So tell us, for those who are not familiar, what Assassin's Creed is about. Right. So the core idea behind Assassin's Creed is that you're reliving the memories of people in the past because their memories are actually stored inside of their DNA. Which is actually a pretty sci-fi idea because your memories are stored in the cells of your brain. And when you die, your brain dies and those memories die with you. But some new research from the Emory University School of Medicine says that certain memories can be passed on genetically from generation to generation. Right, and it's important to note that memories aren't stored in any one particular region of your brain. They're sort of distributed throughout the whole structure, which is good because then if one part of your head gets destroyed, mm -hmm. you don't just immediately forget everything. But your DNA is associated with physical attributes not memories. So how are these things passed on? It turns out that it is specific types of information that can be inherited. Phobias. Yes. So this team trained mice to basically fear the smell of cherry blossoms using electric shocks. So they would. Sadistic I know it's horrifically cruel. You, they smell the flower, then they get an electric shock, and then after that whole experiment, they let the mice breed. And it turns out their offspring were actually also afraid of the scent from birth without having been exposed to the smell of cherry blossoms or electric shocks or bad experience. They just fear the smell of them. And it all comes down to epigenetics, which we talked about before. Some of your genes can change how they express themselves based on your life. Long-term stress, for example, can flip switches in your genes that can make you mentally ill or physically ill. You can check out the video we did about it for more details. Yeah, what's interesting here is that the DNA responsible for sensitivity to the smell of cherry blossoms was actually more active in the sperm of the mice that were shocked. Um, those mice had a stress response to cherry blossoms, which then changed the expression of their DNA, and then they passed that changed DNA onto their children. So what did that do? Well, our brains change and restructure all the time based on what happens to us, and the shocked mice showed changes to the areas of their brain that detect odors, and their children were born with those changes already in place. Right, so a lot of our instinctive behavior, how we react to danger and stress and stuff like that, could actually be genetic. We're all sort of born with a natural aversion to things that are harmful or dangerous to our parents, 
And that sort of comes back around to us and gives us a little bit of a survival advantage. Yeah, but not always though, right? Because we've got a bunch of dumb fears. Like how does being born with my dad's fear of clowns make me better suited for survival? Because clowns are terrifying obviously. Um, but you're right, this also means that we could be passing down things like PTSD and anxiety and fears that are just generally irrational and not actually useful to us. Why can't I inherit the ability to play guitar? So does this mean that we can recreate or relive memories through DNA? And where do wrist blades come into all of this? They don't. Oh. Um, but it does mean that at least some kinds of memories are physically passed down from our ancestors. And hey, there could be lots of interesting things about the Carboni family that maybe you are reliving now and just don't know it. Wow. Yeah, I don't think so. It's probably for the best that there aren't animus quality apparatuses yet because I don't feel like there are a lot of pirate assassins in my ancestry. No. I think it, I'd just jack in and it would be generation after generation of nerd bombers and cowards. Yeah, well, there you go. Not much has changed. So there you have it. Yay, yay science! science! Uh, by the way, speaking of yay science, we host a science show together. We do. It's called Heart. That was from 2013, where research has been done for many years, indicating that you store memories from your ancestors and those before you um, in your brain cells, which is a lie. It's stored in every single cell of your body. Your DNA is magnificent. This is why they can only read about 10%. It is magnificent. It does not die. It gets passed on. This is why you are supposed to breed. <laughs> now, RNA obviously causes encodings, changes that have been happening for years. Retroviral RNA, DNA has been used in many pharmaceuticals. Body memory. That's what some people call it. But see, DNA isn't something that's just natural. I've expressed to you how, you know, when I was a student, I took advantage of that opportunity again, on my own dime to do my own investigations while learning at the same time. And I had uh, gone to many um, universities that were on, on to things that's just insane, like PNA, synthetic DNA. And the reason I was looking into that is because they were trying to figure out how to use, utilize DNA for data storage, right? Because they were incapable of manipulating, manipulating other storage. They decided, well, we're going to create DNA from scratch and we're going to use that for storage. Wait, what do you mean use it for storage? Are you going to use people and store things in people? Because you can't just create inert DNA to access it. Where are you going to put it? Hmm. That's a very, very good question. Please enjoy this because you're going to see where I'm going with this on Bill Gates too. It's quite fascinating. Let's go. I have a problem we need to talk about. There are too many cat videos. Well, it's more than that. We have too many baby photos, too many tweets, Google Docs, videos, GIFs, networks, journals, logs, reports, trackers. We as humans are producing a crazy amount of data. At this pace, we are generating more data 
than we have the capacity to store on hard drives. And that's why right now, for much of our digital archives, we are still relying on magnetic tape. Yes, the same kind of tech we used for VHS and cassettes. Tape takes up space and it can start to go bad after 10 years and needs to be replaced. Anyone got a pencil? But science found a new way to store our information on synthetic made in a lab DNA. The same DNA that makes up the building blocks of life and it can last hundreds of thousands of years. Not to mention it takes up a whole lot less space. I'm Bridget Carey, let's break it down. Go. To illustrate this concept, I shall use a jelly bean. This jelly bean weighs about three grams, but say you have three grams worth of DNA. Scientists can pack 600 million gigabytes of data in something that weighs as much as this jelly bean. That means you could just store all the world's data in a swimming pool of jelly beans. And if you think that's pretty sweet, it gets better. There's a company that already figured out how to turn this into a business. It is using DNA to store Bitcoin passwords. So what is in this vial exactly? It is a 12 word passphrase that would give access to a cryptocurrency wallet. So inside a little drop of liquid is a cryptocurrency wallet key. Correct. I spoke to Vishal Buyan. He's the co-founder and CEO of a startup called Carver. The way he sees it, the safest place to store the key that unlocks your digital money is inside a drop of DNA. Is this, what's in this vial, the same thing that is in our DNA? It's synthetic DNA, so it's not from a human or anything, but it is identical. Oh, sure, you could be a boring person and write down your Bitcoin information on a piece of paper or save it on a computer file. But think of how fast technology changes. What if you store important information on a thumb drive, but 20 years from now, no one is using thumb drives? I found this floppy disk in my parents' house. It was mine when I was a kid. But what if I saved something important on it? Will I ever find a way to see what's in this historic treasured memory? Or maybe it's just some old middle school homework. I really don't know. Technology changes, but DNA will always be around. It's durable and can last thousands of years in a cold, dry place. I feel like I can damage this. Is it fragile? Like, no, like you're good. Yeah? Like, yeah. like, like how well can DNA be stored? Like you can like go like that. You can shake it around. Like, it's good. DNA is the only thing that won't ever become obsolete. Sequencing technology is getting faster and cheaper just every couple of years. And so, and it's always relevant. As long as we're alive, DNA will always be a relevant medium. But uh, about that whole cost thing, making synthetic DNA for data is not cheap. Carver customers pay $1,000 to get this done. And that's just for a really little bit of data. To me, I think to pay the $1,000 to do this is absolutely worth it as insurance policy on my current holdings and where I think they could be in the future. Nate is one of Carver's customers. I met him in his apartment on the first day he got his DNA data in the mail, which he keeps in the freezer. For him, the DNA is a backup to his backup in case something happens to the computer he stored it on. And if that day comes, he'll need to send it to a lab to read the DNA sequence. It's the final insurance policy and the last line of defense in case the other solutions fail. Am I, am I holding your retirement plan? Maybe I should give this back to you. <laughs> 
I, I hope you are. That, that's, that's the goal that one day this will be the retirement plan. Carver says it has 28 clients so far. And in time, you may see competitors pop up with different storage ideas. While this may sound very new and very bizarre, I think this is going to be, and especially over the next five years, 10 years, this is going to be a lot more commonplace than people think. So how does data, a bunch of ones and zeros, get turned into DNA? The concept is pretty simple. Let's start with the DNA. Rungs of a strand are made of four nucleotide bases, abbreviated to be A, T, C, and G. So you can simply translate the binary into the language of the four DNA letters. A could equal zero, zero, T is zero, one, C is one, zero, and G is one, one. So your string of zeros and ones is now DNA code, and the lab prints out the chemicals to stitch it all together as synthetic DNA. I spoke with one of the scientists that mastered this method, Dina Zielinski. It's just like um, any other data. We can read, copy, and write DNA now. So it's not as it's not as crazy as it sounds. Zelensky co-authored a paper on how to do it and in the research successfully stored different files into DNA, including one of the first films ever made, an 1896 French short black and white film of the arrival of a train. It was only 50 seconds long. We also encoded an old operating system and an Amazon gift card, which has been spent. I feel like I always have to say that (laughs) so people don't get too excited. In total, her team put two megabytes of data on DNA, and the process cost seven grand. So DNA storage is too expensive now to be practical. Putting the family photo album on DNA will have to wait. And another downside, it takes time to access your files. You may have to wait a day or two for a lab to read it and convert it all back to data. But even so, the potential is pretty cool. Also, there's one question in all of this that was on my mind. If data can be turned into DNA, can we store data in ourselves, inside the DNA that lives inside of us? That's probably the most common question, actually. I mean, the answer is yes, we could do it, but it's... There's still a lot about our own DNA that we don't know. And it's a lot safer to just store it in a tube in a refrigerator or a freezer somewhere. So right now we're only at the Bitcoin in your freezer stage of this technology. But hey, thumb drives as actual thumbs? Not recommended, but still in the realm of possibility. Way to go, science. Way to go. So that was from 2018. Now I want to tell you, if you were to conduct gene therapy on a human being to get them better, or let's pretend we want to add information to your genetic code in its entirety, either targeting heart cells, brain cells, eye cells, whatever your genetic target therapy is, well then we would inject you with some RNA. (laughs) So RNA helps write, it is a code, right? Your DNA is read by proteins, produces a strand of RNA, and then that's read, and then proteins are made, or cellular structures, or a structure that can create other structures, and so on, and so on, and so on. Now, Storing information in your DNA, that's something nature does. You know, 
I think I've mentioned this before, but I remember when I had moved to North Dakota and I called my mother and I was like, oh, I'm in North Dakota. Like this place is really tiny. Yo, I'm going super country here. You know, I didn't, I don't tell my mom everything. And she was like, what? And I was like, yeah. She's like, okay, let me tell you something. That's really weird. I was like, why? She's like, please don't tell me you're in Minot. I was like, you mean Minot? And she said that her great-grandfather had studied medicine, maybe was a doctor, I think. And then he went to America and he helped with the railroads in Minot, North Dakota. <laughs> How weird. I had never heard of Minot, right? Um, I mean... Well, I had because I had gone there at the base years and years ago on a bird. But the thing is, your genetics, you know, have um, a lot of information. There, you know, your grandparents might say, oh, you look like my dad. You do this. And you'll be like, yo, your dad's like three times before me. Um there's a lot of information. Now, it's not just how you look or how you smile or how you speak, but it's knowledge. Do you not think they did not have tools then? Do you not think they did not play instruments? Do you not think that they had, you know, knowledge? And therefore, if science is showing us that they can trace it back to the first woman, Eve, per se, then that would mean you have eons and eons and eons and eons of information within you, <laughs> hence the whole junk DNA story. Now, if DNA couldn't store that much information and you're really stupid and everything else is just garbage because, you know, nature is so wasteful, then why would people like Bill Gates, right, spend so much money storing things on DNA? Wait, what would you say, Bill Gates? Oh, you didn't know that, did you? Well, see, putting it in a vial, right, and then trying to extract it by reading it on a computer to turn it back into ones and zeros is one thing. But putting it in something living, that can tap into all this information at once at your beck and call is, uh, I think, more favorable for people like that, right? Don't, don't you think? I mean, I would totally prime them and have that ready to go, wouldn't you? I mean, I would. That would make sense. Well, here is from three years ago how Microsoft and the University of Washington, obviously, because Microsoft campus up there, right? Um, demonstrate fully automated DNA data storage. Take a listen. We are, we are producing a lot more data than we're capable of storing today. We think that to put a dent on the problem, uh, we need a radical new solution. And so we're looking at DNA as one such solution. One of the reasons that we're, we're using DNA 
Its, its density is, is orders of magnitude higher than anything that exists today. Its reliability and resiliency, and then it is, has relevancy. We think that as long as there are humans alive, we'll care about reading our own DNA. And that means that we'll have a storage format that will be with us that will always be relevant. We have been working on using DNA for data storage for several years now, and, but the process so far has been incredibly manual literally people moving around with pipettes in their hands. So the only way we're going to make DNA data storage scale up to be usable and be, you know, go mainstream is by automating it. And what we've done with this, with the project that you're going to learn more about now is showing that it's possible to automate the entire process from bits to molecules and back to, to bits. The writing process takes your data file uh, and encodes those ones and zeros into ACs, Ts, and Gs. Uh, those ACs, Ts, and Gs are actually what gets sent to the device itself. Every base that flows into the column incorporates itself onto a strand of DNA. So once all the DNA bases have been incorporated into the strands on the column, the strands need to be removed from the column. So we pump a chemical mixture into the column, which frees them from their solid support and pushes them into a liquid storage bottle. So once we decide to read the data off the DNA, the read master mix is applied to the DNA storage pool. That master mix prepares the DNA to be read. Now that the DNA is readable, it gets pumped into the read device where it gets translated into A, C's, T's, and G's sequences that the computer can understand. Those sequences then get decoded back into ones and zeros. Uh, moving into the future, what we'd like to do is move fluids around in a more intelligent way, uh, which is accomplished by the Purple Drop project. Uh, so we're basically making the uh, like biological primitives, moving and mixing droplets, accessible like software is today, because you can just compose it as much as you want. So you can start with simple systems, and then you can build it up into like an automatic experimentation machine. Basically what you're doing is because water is polarizable, you can generate a charge in it. And so by changing the charge on the board in different locations, you can attract the water to those locations. And I think the other thing that's interesting to realize about this result too, is that this might be pointing to a new kind of computer system that has an electronic component and a molecular component. So you use molecules for what they're good at, use electronics for what they're good at, and then you integrate them and show that it's actually possible to build a system that has dry electronics, wet molecules, and they together do something amazing. Microsoft has seen this impending crisis of not being able to store information as we move forward and invest in a technology that could revolutionize the way that we think about data storage. Yeah, I want to throw the microphone too. So how was that? So what do you think? You think that that's how they're going to work it? They're going to kind of just merge molecules? Do you remember what the Moderna CEO said? We built that RNA vaccine in two days on the computer. Yeah, for some reason you think that it's totally fine. <sighs> Molecular software. Basically it. And you know what's funny? All these guys, right? They're so pissed because they don't know how to unlock the software. This is why they're trying to recreate it, right? So if like a UFO came down, let's pretend, right? 
say it crashed in Roswell. Let's pretend it crashed. And it had like beings in it. And yo, what's this, you know, machine. And it had some freaking computer too. And you're trying to figure out how to work this stuff. What do you do? You take the spaceship and then you try to reverse engineer it so you can see how it works, right? It's kind of when you don't know what you're doing with something, you pretty much break it apart to see what it is, right? And that's if you can, because like, I think like, you know, what if the computer couldn't be accessed? Like you knew it was a computer and you knew it was there, but there was no mouse and no keyboard. But then you realize that the computer interfaces with DNA, specific DNA, very specific. Hmm. You mean it's molecularly accessed. Could be like that for others. And this is what gets them really upset that they couldn't interface with technology that interfaces only with molecular access or... They just want to unlock their own DNA and they can't because now they're realizing that they don't have that capability. And so they're racing against the clock to figure out, well, how did this computer exist and why did it interface only with certain DNA footprints and what was it? And that could be how you unlock it because then I could be a genius, says Bill Gates. Well, maybe you can't because you don't have the right code. And maybe you can't because you're not allowed to. You're not God. You can't unlock things. This is what they're doing. Because why would you use molecular storage when crystals are insane? Crystals survive all events, most events. Why wouldn't you use crystals that have even better organization to integrate and you're messing with molecular science. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, you know, there was another um, report done how we can inherit memories from our ancestors. And is genetic memory real? Tons of it. I want to share that with you. Because I think it's important that people understand just what's going on with these vaccines. Maybe understand a little bit about their obsession. Scientists have debated the existence of engrams, storage of memories in our brain. Intriguing recent research now reveals that ancestral memories may be inherited by offspring. Could traumatic memories inherited from our ancestors contribute to the rising incidence of mental illness? Nearly one in five Americans lives with some form of neuropsychiatric disorder, anxiety, depression, PTSD, etc. These disorders impose a significant burden on society. They can be debilitating for the afflicted and their loved ones, and treatment costs the U.S. hundreds of billions of dollars a year. Recent research in model organisms reveals that traumatic memories may be inherited across several generations and may predispose offspring to mental illness. Is this possible in humans? Could this knowledge give us a deeper understanding of ourselves and potentially even help to release people from the grasp of mental illness? Charles Darwin proposed the theory of natural selection, positing that inherited gene mutations provide offspring with a survival advantage in their environment. Around the same time, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck postulated that organisms could pass down acquired characteristics. He was ridiculed mercilessly. Acquired characteristics are biological changes that occur within an organism's lifetime due to use, disuse, or environmental effects. For example, 
Resistance training causes muscle hypertrophy, an increase in muscle mass and strength. But you can't pass these traits down to your offspring, can you? Actually, studies show that exercise-induced benefits can be passed down to offspring. Not as larger muscles exactly, but as improved mitochondrial function or efficiency within the muscle. Memories are another form of acquired characteristic, a byproduct of our individual experiences interacting with the world around us. Acquiring particularly salient memories from our ancestors could help us know the challenges they faced in their environment and provide us with unique adaptations that ensure our own survival. For memories to be passed down, they first need to be stored as physical structures in the brain. If memories exist as physical remnants of experience, it is possible that they can be passed down to offspring. But this would require information stored in neurons to be transferred and encoded in germline, or sperm and egg cells. One lab found that transferring the RNA of sea slugs trained to respond to a gentle touch that was previously unknown to them could pass on this trained memory to other naive slugs. This suggests that RNA could be the signal that is used to transfer memories from neurons to germline. But I'm sorry, did you catch that? Did you catch that? Did you catch that? Did you catch that? <laughs> I've been saying it. RNA could be the signal that is used to transfer memories from neurons to germline. Where is this vaccine sequestering right now? Oh, it's in the germline, right? In the sperm and the ovaries, right? Oh, shoot. I wonder what they're putting in there. Now, a lot of people are saying, well, they're just talking about PTSD and fears and shit. Uh -uh. See, those are deeply ingrained. Like if you have like a legit fear, like crazy, right? <laughs> right. Those are deeply ingrained. And those are things that you can trigger. But you can't trigger knowledge. Like you can't ask a mouse, hey, what's two plus two? Have you ever seen children that are born and they just grab a violin and they're just like playing sonatas like crazy? That's because that wasn't sealed properly. I've walked you through how DNA closes up, how it opens up, and why there are restrictions on it. Do you think that our creator would have placed restrictions on it? I want you to think of this for a second. If you have created a child, will you put restrictions on what it knows? Oh, no. Your invisible chains are showing now. I hope you're understanding this. I hope you're understanding. Your invisible chains are now out in the open. Invisible chains that were created eons ago. And that they tell you when you learn in school, oh, yeah, that's all junk DNA. But every damn scientist looking and saying, parsimony, Occam's razor, in nature, nothing is of waste. If a slug dies, it fertilizes and brings new life. There's no waste. So why would we believe that there is waste in our DNA? That makes no sense. So if there are invisible chains all along keeping that rosette tight and you're not making proteins that can read it, huh? Okay. Wait, what? Let me complete this video and we will revisit that 10-year lecture of how they read 
DNA. Transfer memories from neurons to germline. But how are these memories encoded and stored? Mounting evidence shows that epigenetic processes play a role in memory consolidation and help to transmit acquired memories across generations, especially when that memory is associated with a particularly salient experience, for example, one of trauma. Epigenetics derives from the Greek epi, above, and genetics, study of genes, the influence that acts above our genes to control their expression. Specifically, environmental experiences control how our genes operate by turning them on or off in a context-dependent manner without changing the underlying genetic code. They do this by placing chemical marks, methylation, acetylation, phosphorylation, etc., on our DNA that dynamically change its structure. This change in structure makes specific genes more or less accessible to the transcriptional machinery that allows them to be expressed. In doing so, our cells are in a constant crosstalk with their environment to determine which genes to activate or repress to optimally respond to environmental conditions. Epigenetic programming has been shown to play a role in the memory consolidation of fear, pleasure, depression, and anxiety associated with particular stimuli. Could this be the mechanism through which memories of ancestral environments are passed down to offspring? One particularly impactful experiment showed that mice conditioned to fear the smell of acetone by pairing the smell with an electrical shock could pass on this fear to offspring that had never encountered acetone before. Researchers studying three generations of mice found that their brains had increased electrical activity, size, and number of the specific olfactory sensory neurons that responded to the smell of acetone. The scientists found that the fear of acetone was encoded through epigenetic changes in the parents' neurons that were transmitted and encoded in the genome and germline of subsequent offspring. A similar epigenetic signature was preserved on the sperm that would eventually become the offspring, but it subsequently disappeared on the sperm of the next generation. When it did, the fear of acetone was lost. Is it possible that trauma in humans can be passed down in the same way? Multiple studies chronicle data showing that this phenomenon occurs in humans as well. The Dutch Hunger Winter study, for example, looked at an extended period of famine toward the end of World War II, when Nazi soldiers blocked food supplies to the Netherlands for several months. This horrific act killed more than 20,000 people and left thousands more severely ill. Pregnant women were particularly vulnerable. The DHW study assessed the health of these women's children and grandchildren. It found that they had a higher incidence of obesity and were at higher risk for metabolic diseases such as type 2 diabetes. This suggests their bodies were programmed to alter their metabolism and hold on to every last calorie in case they too had to face a famine similar to that of their ancestors. Apparently, the children inherited an ancestral memory of prolonged food scarcity and were epigenetically programmed to anticipate similar circumstances. Understanding the role of transgenerational inheritance of ancestral memories in a human context has particular significance as our environments rapidly change from generation to generation. As such, many of the environmental stressors and traumas of our ancestors are not relevant to the context of our socially and technologically enhanced lives. Could the chronic stress, mental and metabolic diseases that are so prevalent in our generation be due in part to a heightened stress response inherited via epigenetic engrams of trauma passed down from our ancestors? If so, how does that change our understanding and level of compassion for individuals suffering from mental illness? If we understand the mechanism by which these ancestral memories are passed down, could we reverse it? We need to explore and investigate these important questions to deepen our understanding of mental health and find paths to better treatments and increased well-being. 
follow the links below the video to see how you can help. Like, follow, subscribe. Hmm. 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 So, if you have the ability to take those chains off, right, to know all from the past, every single memory, from every single person that made you, you would have to think, is evolution so slow? Remember, Darwin, when he was on the island, said that seeds would be falling to the ground. So all the birds with the long beaks over a very short period of time died out. So only ones with shorter beaks would be alive. Evolution. Because your environment impacts your self your interaction with that environment. Remember when I told you that when I was uh, uh, shadowing into uh, Craig Ventner's laboratory, the concern and the problems that he had was being able to have the bacteria that he created to spit oil out, right? That's what he wanted, ethanol, uh, just to create energy, to create gas, to create, he was trying everything. He got paid a lot of money to do it. What he realized is in a controlled environment, controlled temperature, air, no interaction with nature, it would be so. But the minute it was in nature, suddenly all the genetic code that he knocked out that was virulent suddenly appeared and had no idea just how epigenetics work. So this is a video of mine from 2010, one of the very few that I've kept. Let me show you where the chains are. Okay, well, I thought I'd make um, histones, chromatins, and RNA kind of easy for everyone. Um, <clears throat> seeming that I find a lot of stuff online, I thought maybe I can give back. So we'll start with um, my professor's slides. And as we see here, my professor has nicely uh, put down the multiple levels of DNA packaging. Okay. So basically, what is this slide telling us? It's telling us that, first of all, DNA, let me just state, is over two meters long in length. Okay. And there is no way we can fit two meters in a tiny little cell, right? Now, she's indicated over here, and let's see how this works. Mm, let's go for blue. She's indicated over here two nanometers. Okay. That's just a short region of it. Okay. But just remember the whole DNA is relatively almost two meters long. Now, what happens is, I mean, we all know that DNA is a double helix and it has sticky ends, meaning, you know, if you kind of bend it and stick it together, you know, it'll bind with the others. You want to keep it as to itself as possible because there are a lot of interactions, correct? So what happens? This octameric thing, let's just put it this way for now as we're starting out, comes in and it's kind of like a reel. And this is called a histone. It comes in and DNA actually wraps itself around it as we see here. So it's kind of like the hose reel. Let's picture it that way. 
Now it's about 195 base pairs long, what we have wrapped around here. And then as you see here, there's this little leftover piece kind of to connect, you know, because it's filled up on that end. So it goes to the next one. And this is what they call a linker. Sorry, I'm using my mouse. So, okay. So this is what is called a linker. Fancy name to say that it's linking one reel to another. The linker is about 27 base pairs long. Okay. So this is the first level of packaging as she. So basically here, what, what you see, right? What you're seeing, and I'm going to try to point it to you is that this is just a short little piece of DNA before it's coiled like this, right? And it gets coiled around these things and creates flowers. Let me move to that portion. Hold on. It creates little flowers where I'm explaining it. I think this is like the most ex explanation someone will get right here. Hold on. So you understand how it's packed. Closer to each other, okay? So they just come closer to each other and they just kind of connect. And this package, this level of it is called, you know, the 30 nanometer pack, which is the level that it's ready to go. Basically, what happens is, is that as it comes together, it kind of loops like a little flower, okay? Let's just picture it that way. And this little flower is what makes up our chromatin because you've got a lot of these little flowers going on around here, okay? And this is how it's packed. Now, it does not necessarily mean that it's super tight, okay? Because um, it doesn't, a chromatin, it's still not tight at that point. Hold on. I'm going to show you where something comes in and reads it. Hold on. Did I just skip over it? Damn it. This is the best part. Because then we can't read it. So it's still going to be like a flower, but proteins are going to be able to access it here, here, here to, uh, to read it and to be able to decode it. Though the most condensed section of the chromosome, as we see here, is the super coiling. That's the last step that happens. It's an additional coiling step. I want you guys to understand why DNA packs like this. Because there's so much information and so many proteins floating around, uh, it needs to conceal itself because you don't want to make proteins when you don't need it. So basically what happens is these proteins attach over here and they attach like a lock and key right in. And that says, open up, I need to read you. So the DNA will relax there and give the information that that protein that was created by the RNA wants it to do. Are you understanding what I am trying to tell you? Now, <laughs> those proteins that attach can also seal things even more. So that will disallow your DNA to be read because the DNA is packed tightly to fit a lot of data, right? It's like 22 meters. That's super long, right? all packed in a nucleus of a cell, <laughs> it protects the DNA and then it organizes it to facilitate transactions such as gene expression or suppression.
Now what happens is when your RNA makes proteins, it can either attach to your DNA, um, the protein that was made by the RNA can attach to your DNA to read information and make it do something, or it can seal it, meaning it can lock it up forever, forever. And these are how the invisible chains happen. Um, here is how genes, this is a really bad video. I couldn't make it bigger, but this is a really nice video uh, from one of my lectures that I had. Um, again, I went to school so that I'm ready for this. Here we go. Which sums it up for us. Sorry, I can't expand it any bigger. I won't go bigger. The total length of the DNA in a human cell is approximately two meters. The DNA double strand that is wound into an alpha helix only fits into the cellular nucleus because it is folded in a complex manner. Structural proteins are required for this folding. Together with the DNA, they are termed chromatin. Octomers comprised of histones bind to DNA, which wraps itself around this protein core in the process, thus forming a nucleosome. Between adjacent nucleosomes, a piece of DNA, the linker DNA, remains free. A characteristic string of pearl structure is formed. The nucleosome chain is folded to form a 30 nanometer fiber. An additional structural protein, histone 1, stabilizes this fiber. Certain regions of the 30 nanometer fiber, the scaffold-associated regions, couple to structural proteins, among them the topoisomerase. In this process, the 30 nanometer fiber forms loops. The filamentous DNA protein complex forms the so-called super twist, which is further twisted in an additional coiling step. With this final step, the complete condensation of chromatin has been achieved. This is the organizational state of the chromosome during nuclear division, mitosis. Why did I show you that? Memories, 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 memories. What was it that we said? that there's gene silencing and gene amplification. So funny that they've been taking our DNA samples. So funny that they've given us RNA vaccines, <laughs> almost as if they're trying to put more, have our body, like they said, hijack our body's mechanisms to create proteins. What are those proteins for? See, a long, long time ago, there was this story that really smart people that were selfish and wanted to rule uh, took a bunch of beings, right, um, and wanted to replicate them, but they couldn't. So what they did was they took their DNA and manipulated it, just smart enough to serve them, but not smart enough to overtake them. But the problem is that even those very smart people that decided to do it were all created by the same dad. And it's like, listen, dude, you can't be doing that shit. That stuff is my image. You being bad is also my image. Not good. You shouldn't be doing things like that because in the end, it's going to bite you in the bosom. You need to allow things to just exist. Well, again and again and again and again, manipulation, 
and making things stupid. I mean, look at all this push, like all of a sudden in the last like hundred years after like, you know, stupid, crazy events happen. Like, like London had no power in the 1800s. Shut up. They had no windows then. Shut up. Cars with electricity. Shut up. No, there aren't. Winners always write history. But um, what happened in the past hundred years? I mean, oh, well, let's see, like around nineteen forty something, everyone just started to go insane and just wanted to push vaccines everywhere. And you hear these nice stories of Louis Pasteur and Marie Curie, who just you know found happenstance this, and it's like coincidences, of course, right? Stop coincidences, please stop. And so all these medications came out and what happened? We got a lot of this autism stuff and cancer stuff. It's like so weird. Like, yeah, there were mistakes before. There were things that disrupted before, but so much. Like, did we have like autism to this scale and then call it spectrums, right? In the early 1900s, I'm just asking for a friend. Did we all of a sudden... I mean, did, was there like a shit ton of cancer going around in the 1800s and 1900s? I don't think so. So, so these things come in that are supposed to be fixing you. And while they have a dead virus in them, they also have a lot of other stuff. Like my report that I did for the CDC when I was on a federal work study was, yo, we're using pork cells. I don't think Jews and Muslims will appreciate this shit. Uh, we should tell them that. And what is all this retroviral stuff in here? Uh, is that supposed to help encode? Because I thought we're just giving a small dose to train the gut to identify it and get B cells and T cells on the ready. I'm so confused. You know, even if you know the answer, sometimes you ask questions just to see what they'll tell you. And that's what's fascinating. Because most of these people doing it have no idea what's going on. I mean, Cancer cells. What is it? Oh my gosh. So there was this chick, right? Have you ever heard of that story? Wait, before we get to that, let's just look at um, the most recent um, invention. It was actually in Europe. These people won an award for creating DNA storage. Yes, they did. They won a big fat award and they've patented it. Take a listen. The knowledge of the world. We want to store it for future generations. In books, with the codes of the different languages. In digital codes on hard drives or on other electronic media. But all of this storage has one crucial weakness. Books fall apart, they crumble away or burn, and newer things like memory sticks either get lost or just stop working at some point. If you store data, it's a familiar problem. Ten-year-old CDs may not function anymore. Digital storage media just aren't designed to preserve data long-term. There's currently no technology that stores data reliably over a very long period of time. That is what prompted the two chemists, Wendelin Stark and Robert Grass, to search for a storage medium that would enable data to be read even thousands of years from now. 
and they've actually found that data storage medium in nature. It's existed for millions of years. All the information about life on Earth is contained inside it. It's the oldest code in the world, DNA. When we store information digitally, we use zeros and ones. That's what we have on our computers or disks. But we can also use nature's building blocks for this. These are A, C, T and G, the four bases of the genome. So we now simply translate the sequence of zeros and ones into A, C, T, G language. So the researchers take nature and combine it with technology. For example, every character in a book can be translated into digital code. And that, in turn, into a DNA code. A sequence of DNA letters is created. This construction plan then enables artificial DNA to be produced. And the information inside an entire book can then become DNA. But protecting it effectively is a challenge. The problem with all of the previous approaches was that the information wasn't stable enough if simply translated into DNA. The stability doesn't only depend on the DNA itself, but also on sealing the DNA inside another material. Nature has provided a role model for this problem too. The two scientists took their inspiration from fossils. When sealed away inside bone, DNA can remain stable for hundreds of thousands of years without damage to any of the information inside it. So they had to find a material that seals synthetic DNA just as effectively and makes it stable. Robert Grass and Wendelin Stark spent months searching for this substance. Finally, they try using tiny spheres of non-porous silicon dioxide, that is, glass particles. These are only one ten-thousandth of a millimeter in size, and so they're only visible under an electron microscope. The researchers seal the DNA inside these tiny spheres. There's enough DNA in each one to store two pages of a book. Then the researchers do the stress test. They store the glass spheres for one week at a temperature of almost 70 degrees Celsius, the equivalent of 2,000 years of storage in Central Europe. Will the DNA and the information it contains remain stable? The scientists can only establish this by freeing the DNA from its glass armor again without damage. The problem is that we can't read the DNA when it's inside the glass particles, so we have to remove it. With glass, we chose the most stable material in existence, but there are fluoride ions when they react with glass, so we can selectively dissolve the glass without destroying the DNA. Using these biotechnological methods, the researchers succeed in retrieving the valuable data from the tiny glass beads. After three years of intensive research, it's now clear. The DNA data stored inside the synthetic glass fossils is undamaged. The DNA code can be read in its entirety again and translated back into the original information. The researchers even use this technique to preserve a music album for eternity.
But it's not only data that can be stored using this method. Grass, Stark and two of their colleagues found the spin-off company Helixer AG in order to market their invention for stored DNA sealed inside glass. These invisible DNA markers are a sort of identity card that cannot be forged. They are non-hazardous, so they can be transferred to any product. For instance, to textiles, tropical fruit, gold, or even diamonds. In this way, the product's origin can be traced from production, through processing, to the end consumer. Saving data in DNA is currently still expensive and only possible in the laboratory. But Robert Grass and Wendelin Stark believe that the technology will prevail and soon become more widespread. With these technologies, data can be stored for very long periods, probably millions of years, far longer than with any digital media today. And DNA is the basic component of our own biological information, so we'll always be able to read it. And, as with other technical developments, we can assume the devices will also be a huge amount smaller, more manageable, cheaper and more widespread. 400,000 terabytes of data, the equivalent of all the films currently available on YouTube, can be stored in just a tiny amount of DNA. With this method, today's technology will be revolutionized. And they got a nice award for doing this. But you have to think, so what is up with this? Like, okay, so they're handing out RNA vaccines that could be sealing your DNA to make you stupider, but not you specifically, those that survive, but to your offspring that are to come. And they need to see the effects of this. I mean, you can't have people breaking open those invisible chains and awakening, can you? <laughs> That's the key. But you know, they did actually get that eternal life, but it was so messed up because it only happened under one thing. Did you know, obviously you knew, that the Africans were experimented on a lot? There was this video going around that I want to show before I get to this that, you know, kind of said the th same things I said, that Black Lives Matter, and why would Black people even, you know, consider taking the vaccine, right? Because that's insane. Like, who would do that? Who would get this vaccine that will make them hesitant based on the fact that, you know, they don't treat African Americans the same? Take a look. Okay, let's see if it works now. Let me try it, because it didn't want to work. I think I got it. Dear white liberals, 28% of black Americans aged 18 to 44 years old are vaccinated in New York, meaning the vaccine passports deny over 72% of the black community their services. Since you think voter ID is racist, you must surely think that vaccine passports are as well, but you don't. Instead, you want to demonize everyone who refuses the COVID-19 vaccine. So let me tell you exactly why the black community is the most resistant to this vaccine. Let's go back to a time 
when the government decided that the blacks would be used as guinea pigs without their knowledge. From 1932 to 1972, the government conducted the infamous Tuskegee experiment on black men in an attempt to understand the effects of syphilis. Participants were told that they were being treated for bad blood. We were lied to. From 1965 to 1966, the government conducted experiments on prisoners, the majority of them being black, to understand the effects of Agent Orange. Prisoners were told that this was simply dermatology research. We were lied to. From 1960 to 1971, the government conducted Cold War radiation experiments on poor black cancer patients in an attempt to gain an understanding on how much radiation the human body could take. Patients were told that this would help cure their cancer. Once again, we were lied to. The list of atrocities and deceit goes on, yet white liberals seem to think that they know what's best for us. The truth is, black Americans have authority over our own bodies, not you. We're tired of being controlled, manipulated, and lied to. The bottom line is this, we truly won't know the effects of this vaccine for at least a few years. After all that we've been through, we are allowed to be skeptical. So my question to you, white liberals, is why are you applauding forced vaccinations on those who don't trust it? On those who come from a lineage of trauma due to dark history? I thought, black lives matter. Hmm, so interesting. Didn't I do a Black Lives Matter video? I did. I did talk about those experiments, didn't I? Didn't I? Well, I'm going to show you an experiment from one of those that gave them an unlocked crazy stuff. Now, all of you will hear how incredible this is. I mean, if you read the comments on the YouTube video, this woman is a hero because her cells live on. Who was Henrietta Lacks and the immortal HeLa cell that gives us cancer studies? Pay attention. And now, something you didn't learn in school. Join us for another true story from the backside of American history. It was just a small patch of grass on Wolf Street, but it was next to her hospital window. And her husband brought her children there every day to play. She would pull herself out of bed, press her face against the window just to watch her kids play. What could easily have been the last time. For some time, she had known something was seriously wrong, even though her doctors were sure they had destroyed the cancer that had developed so quickly. Now her pain was enormous. Not even Demerol or morphine could dull it. Now I'm going to let you in on something that you probably don't know. All these black Americans that were in the hospital with cancer that were testing radiation and checking shit out, right? that they were going to help. And I'm sorry, this is a very old video, so I really can't um, make it louder. Um, <laughs> they were kind of like the AIDS patients. You remember the story that I told you a long, long time ago when Fouch came to the surface about that black single woman in Tennessee that was single with a child and pregnant 
And she went to the doctor to get her first prenatal screening. And the doctor told her she had HIV when she didn't. They needed to check out HIV medication toxicities. So they took dumb people, feeble-minded people, and of course, black Americans that were on welfare and lied to them and told them they had AIDS so that they can check out the toxicity of these medications. Henrietta Lacks was the same. She went to the doctor one day and they told her, you have cancer. And then, as you can hear, she was in a lot of pain. Take a listen. The struggle it took to walk those few steps to that hospital window to see her children play grew harder each day. Within a week, the pain was so intense, she couldn't even get out of bed. The hospital staff had early on forbidden her husband Day to bring their kids inside, saying it upset her too much. She would die at 12.15 on the afternoon of October 4, 1951, at only 31 years of age. But no obituary was published. And so no one besides her friends, family, and the doctors knew that she'd even lived. It would take decades before we all knew her name. Loretta Pleasant had been born on August 1st, 1920, in a small shack where the dirt road ended, overlooking the train depot in Roanoke, Virginia. She had been the night child born to Eliza and Johnny, but her mother would die giving birth to their tenth child four years later. Johnny, who was emotionally incapable of raising ten children on his own, gathered them up and took them to parcel them out among relatives in Clover, Virginia. Loretta would live with her grandfather, Tommy, who was already raising a grandson. The log cabin they lived in had once been the slave quarters on the plantation. He now worked as a poor tobacco farmer. It was the booming 1920s, but for this poor African-American family, that meant nothing. Now, Loretta and her cousin were just kids, but they had to get up at four in the morning to milk the cows and feed the chickens and spend their days in Johnny's tobacco field, hoping to bring in the meager harvest each year. Day, her cousin... He left school in fourth grade because he was needed too badly on the farm. Loretta would hold out until sixth grade. Finally quitting school because she had to walk past the white school in Clover to get there. She was just tired of the white kids calling her racial epithets and chucking rocks at her every day. Now the former slave quarters they lived in had no running water or electricity, but that wasn't unusual for the time. And if the kids wanted a special treat after they finished their tobacco farm chores, 
They would hire themselves out to a local white farmer. For a day's work, each one would earn a dime to go see a movie. Day was four years older than Loretta, but their housing accommodations meant they shared the same room. And that's how Loretta came to have her first baby at 14. The second child came four years later. But Lucille had been born afflicted, mentally challenged. And within a few years, they were forced to institutionalize her. It seems that life just wouldn't give Loretta a break. Well, at 20, she married her first cousin and the father of her children, Day Lax. And she started using the name Henrietta. Eight months later, just as the Second World War broke out, one of Day's and Henrietta's cousins, Fred Garrett, he came home to Clover, driving his 1936 Buick, dressed in fine clothes. Fred had become a steel worker at the Sparrows Point Mill outside of Baltimore. And he convinced Day and Henrietta this was the one place where poor blacks could find work and be paid decent money. After all, Sparrows Point was putting out 8 million tons of steel each year. And it took 30,000 men to do that. For blacks, the pay was 80 cents an hour. Almost middle-class wages. Fred even lent Day the money for a bus ticket to get him to the mill. And once he found work, Day promised he would save up money, send for Henrietta and their kids. As it turns out, Fred Garrett, he was drafted into the Army a few months later. Day hadn't saved enough money to bring his wife and kids up from Clover. So Garrett gave Day... All of the money he had saved so his cousin could bring his wife and kids to live as a family again. For the life Henrietta had lived, almost illiterate, poor, harsh, babies at 14, she was a singular woman. When another cousin came down with polio, it was Henrietta who was there every day to help him recover. If there was ever anyone sick in the family, it was Henrietta who came over to nurse them and do their jobs that they couldn't do at the time. At Turner's Point near the steel mill, Henrietta often made lunches for any of Day's friends who didn't have any money. At least when they first started working at the mill. And their home was a place of neighborhood gatherings, both because of her cooking because Henrietta was always so glad to see anyone. If there was one thing that a few women actually held against her, it's that Henrietta was never bitter as to her life's experience. It should have been warranted. She was relentlessly upbeat, always there whenever anyone needed her. Even when her strained husband occasionally came home, and shared a venereal disease. It didn't seem to damage their marriage or cause any real commotion in their home. And so life went on at Turner's Point for the lax. And as the 40s neared an end, they had another child. As 1950 came into sight, 
Henrietta told a few of her closest friends something just didn't feel right. She made them feel a lump under her stomach, mentioning this could be serious. Friends blew it off, said she was just pregnant again. Well, that was in fact true. And shortly thereafter, she gave birth to her fifth child, Joe. Then a few weeks later, she told Day he needed to take her to the hospital. She was bleeding. It wasn't the right time of the month. Johns Hopkins, one of the few major hospitals in that time that would treat black patients. Yes, it was segregated. And possibly blacks didn't always get the same exceptional care that whites did. But by and large, Johns Hopkins was one of the best hospitals in America if you were an African American. Jones was the gynecologist on duty that day, and he looked at her chart. A month earlier, she had tested positive for gonorrhea from another of Day's late nights out. And she'd had her baby just before that. But Jones easily saw the cervical cancer growing inside of her and wondered how anyone could have missed it during her delivery or the previous visit. Jones had seen a thousand cases of cervical cancer before, but never anything like Henrietta's. It was shiny and purple. So sensitive, if you just touched it, it bled. We cut out samples and sent them on to the pathology lab. But he also scraped some of her healthy cells for comparison. And here, a near miracle happened. Just not for Henrietta. For 30 years, scientists had tried to find a way to get human cells to live outside of the body. All sorts of contraptions and nutrient mediums were tried. And every last one of them failed to keep human cells alive for more than a few days. And the failure to find a way to maintain living cells was holding back many areas of science. Without living, growing human cells, doctors and researchers actually couldn't even study how viruses worked. And it was much harder to test new drugs and vaccines because all of this was being done on animals at the time to ensure that new medicines were cell neutral, meaning they didn't kill human cells and therefore would have been toxic to use. Dr. George Guy was head of John Hopkins Tissue Culture Research he had been trying for 30 years to do what no one had ever accomplished, keep human cells alive outside of the body for medical testing. And the samples he was given of Henrietta cells were put into the sterile tubes, full of nutrients, put into a gently swirling motion, 
just like all of the tens of thousands of cell samples he'd been given before. Her human cells would be marked HeLa, short for Henrietta Lacks. And as she lay dying, came our miracle. Her cells were not just living in those test tubes, they were multiplying at an incredible rate, doubling every 24 hours. After thousands of years of medical science, Henrietta Lacks cells would change medicine forever. On the very day that she had died, her cells had already multiplied so many times that Dr. Guy was shipping them around to other medical researchers for their experiments. Three weeks after she passed away, Dr. Guy was so convinced that Henrietta's immortal cells were the key to all future medicine, and so he went on Baltimore TV to proclaim that the day of cancer was near an end. By then, Henrietta's cells were already on the way to researchers here in Texas, New York, Europe, India, Chile, and anywhere else medical testing was being performed. In Tuskegee, Alabama, the first industrial system was set up to manufacture trillions of Henrietta cells. Wait a minute. Did they say Tuskegee? You mean where they did the Tuskegee experiment? Oh, I see. I just wanted to clear that up. And in February of 1952, Dr. Jonas Salk announced he had developed the world's first polio vaccine. It's still, he cautioned, needed testing. Wait a minute. Stop right there. Let's stop right there. Did he create the first polio vaccine after these immortal cancer cells in Tuskegee, where they conducted the Tuskegee experiment, right? I, I, I'm just asking for clarification, of course. Hopefully this breaks off a couple of chains. He needed to run millions of neutralization tests to ensure the vaccine safety. Well, the March of Dimes told Saul they just didn't have the budget to buy all of the monkeys he was going to need for those tests. And just as that major problem surfaced, suddenly, Henrietta's cells were being grown in numbers that would allow full testing of the Salk polio vaccine. More important, it was quickly found that her cells actually were even more susceptible to the polio virus than any other cultured cell had ever been in the past. Well, by now, the media was scrambling to find out more about this woman and how her human cells were going to quickly change all of medicine and science. The Minneapolis Star Tribune found the story, but they got her name wrong. Collier's Magazine called Johns Hopkins for the story. At first, the administrators refused to name the original patient. But finally, Dr. Guy gave them the name Helen Land to throw them off. It is hard to understate 
how massive a discovery this was in medicine at the time. Hence, the media frenzy. Well, then other miracles started happening. Researchers found if you froze Henrietta cells when they thought they would come back to life. The government used her cells to determine levels of radiation the human body could stand and regenerate without morphing into something else. Scientists quickly found they could create clones of her cells, and that started that entire scientific venue. As stated earlier, with Henrietta cells, the entire field of modern virology kicked into high gear. Because for the first time, they could see how viruses work when they were attacking human cells. Pharmaceutical companies in the U.S. and Europe, they were using her cells to perfect medicines that could not cause other unintended cellular damage. The cosmetics industry did the same thing. In Asia, Henrietta cells were being used to study hemorrhagic fever then killing numerous American soldiers. And then they were used to test the effect of steroids and drugs for chemotherapy, tuberculosis, salmonella, and virtually every other modern medical advance that's been made in our lifetime. And right here in Texas, it was Henrietta Lacks still living cells that for whatever reason, when put through testing, would actually expand more than any other human cell study. And it was because of that we decoded the human chromosome from her cells and genetic science took off. Hold on a second. Are you understanding how all of this is evolving are you understanding how this has all evolved from polio to today? Are you understanding? See, right now there are people in the hospital that may be vaccinated or unvaccinated. The unvaccinated are the targets. The vaccinated, well, if you don't have a lot of family and friends, and if you don't have money, and you have government insurance, well... We might find some purple bloody thing inside you, you know, from experimentation, of course. So you see how that works? It's almost as if they're testing things and covering it up as healthcare, kind of like what happened to Henrietta. When you provide foreign DNA and expect to see how that works, well, you'll be very, very surprised. Who is going to refute the fact that this cancer wasn't seen before? No one will. Tuskegee. <laughs> so weird. Did you ever know that Henrietta Lacks, her cells were being produced there? What were they doing? The Tuskegee experiment. See, that's a big problem. It hasn't changed. Hopefully this opens your eyes just a little bit more to understand what's really going on. Today, 20 tons of her cells have been grown 
for medical research. They have enabled advanced research into cancer, AIDS, gene mapping, virtually every vaccine known to man, and so on, thanks to research done on Henrietta Lacks cells, which reacted and grew like no other human cell had ever before. 11,000 medical patents have been awarded. Either you or someone in your family is alive today because Henrietta Lacks died in 1951 at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Dr. Guy tried to get control of her cells shortly after her death, but discovered he'd given away so many samples for free, there was no way to get them patented and back under his control. And after 25 years of the public being lied to about the miracle woman's real name, Rolling Stone magazine published the true story in 1976. And that's how her family found out. So they'd never asked for any money. They never made any real demands at all in spite of the fact that many of them still live in poverty in those broken-down shacks in Clover, Virginia. No, they just wanted the medical community, which had used 20 tons of her immortal human cells, to finally give credit to her for her dying contribution for all mankind. And the family wanted to say in the continuing genome research on her line of cells. And in August 2013, the medical community finally agreed to do the right thing. But that's the story of the poor, black, uneducated girl, pregnant at 13 by her first cousin. Lived the worst kind of life, but she was never embittered. In fact, she always took care of everyone else, right down to her husband's co-workers at the steel mill, making sure they had enough to eat when they had no money. And the woman who would struggle out of that hospital bed to go to the window to see her kids play outside until the pain of her cancer made that impossible. Then... At just 31 years of age, she was gone. Unlike everyone else in history, her human cells lived on in time, saving millions of lives around the world. This is her contribution from a woman whose nurses wouldn't even let her hold her children one last time. Oh, they don't let you see your loved ones before they go one last time. They hold you at bay because they're too sick. They're too much in pain. You see, it's, it's almost like it's the same playbook, right? That's what's insane, is that... Some people just don't see it. Hmm. It's all about the awakening. It's all about trying to be awakened.
And the only way that happens, if you can remove those invisible chains that disallow you to see. While many may think that memories are stored in your mind, they are stored in every single piece of DNA you have. Your fingers, your skin, your butt, your heart, your lung, your brain has everything in there. And, and when you reproduce, everything you have is also passed on to them. Pretty interesting. Pretty interesting that all these vaccines began from a woman who was enslaved by the medical community. Pretty interesting that even HIV, cancer, polio, everything was derived from this poor woman who was, what would they call it back then? Feeble-minded. And they made her a hero, right, by saying, well, you know, she had this. It was so painful. She couldn't get up. Really? 31 years old, 10 kids later, and she can't get up? Stop. They were testing. They were doing things they should not have done. This is how it began. The accelerated program began. So everything inside of you was put in there. I mean, I say it many times, it's your fault that we're in this position. But you did get something silenced. You did get some things done, but you know what? It's all frequency. Water is affected by frequency. Food is affected by frequency. You are affected by frequency. And therefore, when the frequencies have changed, which they have in the past six years, suddenly things you couldn't hear, you could. Things you couldn't see, you could. Because they knew that nothing would be able to stop what's coming. They feared it because they knew it. And in reality, you can feel it too. You can feel that there's something weird going on. Something different. Well, stand fast. It's going down. God bless.